Now, in this chapter, we're going to be talking a little bit about spinning. To the non-initiated anglers out there, spinning is when you cast a large object across the river when the river's too high to fish the fly, which is a much nicer way to fish, really. It's not quite as taxing on the body. Anyway, in this chapter, I mentioned something called a flying sea, which is an abbreviation for something called a flying condom. Now, don't worry, we're not going UFNA. It's a type of spinner. So a flying C is short for condom. Now, that's a large weight with a disc that spins, a silver disc that spins at front to attract the attention of a fish, and the weight is purely to get down in the river. And you cover that weight in latex, hence the name condom. So when I mention that, I'm not going mental, I'm not going kinky, we're not descending into a vice programme. This is just about fishing. So when I mention a flying sea, don't be alarmed. This is this Hooked on is Hope, hooked on the, hope podcast. the podcast. The writings, the writings of James Gilbray, Terminal Chancer, recast, recast into the audio stream, audio stream by Paul Stanatrage. Read by James Gilbray. Evolutionary processes give rise to diversity at every level of biological organization. Why are there Why still monkeys? Well, because we're well, not because monkeys. We're, not monkeys. We're, fish. we're fish. We're fish. Evolutionary purpose. Evolution has, evolution occurred. has occurred. Again, evolution has officially occurred. Hi, everybody. Here we are. We're going to do another chapter from the first book. This is chapter seven. The deconstruction, the deconstruction of evolution. A hymn for every man. For every man. Is round, but now it's flat. There is no question I haven't asked. I'm breaking up with the world. I lost myself within myself. The deconstruction of evolution. A hymn for every man. Every man. Every man. As May drifted into June, it became evident that rain was to become a rarity and that perhaps we should just enjoy the sunshine and stand down, unload the boot for the time being and break out the picnic blanket. Maybe I could use this downtime as a period of recovery. Half time, iron out all my aches and pains, get myself match fit for the big three months. My list of ailments included a pulled left hamstring, a ropey left Achilles, and an awkward nagging knot under my right shoulder blade, which felt like it needed digging out. This sucker was my priority, as it had been ambivalent to my own course of treatment. The rotocuff cure-all, the Mick Shannon windmill. It was while I was completing my own spun physiotherapy that a colleague advised that a massage would sort it out and that she knew a girl doing a degree course at a nearby college who needed a model so she could be assessed on her Swedish massage. I couldn't let Sweden down. My colleague went on to inform me that the treatment would be completely free of charge. I couldn't let my bank account down. So I found myself on planet beauty therapy, surrounded by beauticians and people wearing scrubs. Everyone. Everyone. 
as I examined this new environment, it became notable that nobody owned their own skin tone, fingernails, eyelashes or eyebrows. As I listened to whales singing, I inspected the posters on the wall with open mouth wonder. Genuine raccoon hair extensions on sale here. Boy was I out of touch. I was ushered into a cubicle and asked a list of questions by a very friendly lady who seemingly needed assurance that I wouldn't croak under her care. Once Michelle was satisfied that I was fit enough to be treated, then she pulled the drape round the massage table, asked me to strip to my boxers and exited the curtain. No problem. I stood there, gut out with no hiding place and gave her a very meek shout that I was ready for her to return. She was a cheerful, happy woman in her early thirties, very smiley and polite in a hyper air hostess sort of way. I'm stood next to the table bed thing, wondering about shaved raccoons. The following exchange is conducted with the patient using an unnervingly suspicious tone, while the other protagonists concentrate on a disbelieving quizzical note. Right then, the first thing I'm going to do is check your posture. Can you stand up straight, please? I am. Oh. Really? Straighten your back and puff your chest out. I stretch back and straighten up. Oh, does that feel straight to you? Can you step back to the wall and put your heels to the wall and touch the wall with your shoulder blades? I obey her instructions. Oh, oh dear. Michelle goes from shoulder to shoulder with a look of mild concern and then stands in front of me with her hands on both shoulders at once. Oh, my. What's wrong? I'm going to have to ask Donna to come and have a look at this. Why, what's up? Michelle went off to get Donna and it's just me against the wall and the whales. Michelle returns with an older, more mature looking woman who wouldn't look out of place behind a makeup counter or hiding in a bowl of oranges. Michelle gives Donna a quick recap and Donna asks me to take a step forward. Oh yes, Michelle. I see what you mean. Is that how you stand normally? Er, uh, yeah, I think so. Why? Um, well, you seem to have a stoop. Have you ever been in an accident? No, no accidents. I think we need to get Marie to have a look. Donna disappears. Michelle now says that it's nothing to worry about, about. while I think to myself, Marie? Who the fuck's Marie? Donna returns accompanied by a lady in her late 50s with glasses suspended on the end of her nose. Mature hog-roasted complexion, alarming carrot tan, six-inch llama hair eyelashes, hand-drawn surprised eyebrows, inch-long zebra pattern fingernails and an upright microwave raccoon hairdo that Don King would have been proud of. I couldn't let you go without uh, asking uh, probably uh, the obvious. What do you suppose is the deal on Don's hair? <laughs> she was obviously their queen. Queen Marie now gets the capsule recap and asks me, using her 30-a-day East Lancashire guttural croak, to walk 10 feet in a straight line, turn and come back. The three of them take a look at me as though they've found the missing link. All I can think of is the Patterson-Gimlin film footage of Bigfoot walking through the forest. If it's a guy in a suit, the Patterson-Gimlin film is one of the great hoaxes of all time. If it's not, 
The film would completely upend everything we understand about apes and evolution. 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 Please, take a step back and put your shoulders against the wall. Marie, tight-lipped and head slightly shaking, puts her hands on my shoulders and gives me a quizzical look. Yes, Michelle, you can continue with the treatment and advise the client to do some exercise to improve his posture. He appears to stoop forward in a hunched fashion. And you're right, he does seem to have one shoulder bigger than the other. I now feel like Marty Feldman playing Igor in the film Young Frankenstein. You must be Igor. No, it's pronounced Igor. Donna and Marie leave while Michelle gets me to lie face down on the massage table. Michelle gets to work and start giving it plenty. She soon finds a knot the size of a pipe bung and explains that my shoulder is as swollen as a cartoon ham and that I will have to come back four or five times before it's cured. During the next 40 minutes, we have a chinwag about how my shoulder could be in such a state. I really was a total blank. I mentally tallied all my many activities, but I couldn't offer an answer. Maybe it's due to me bending down and picking up the kids. No other solution to my giant shoulder sprung to mind. It wasn't until I got in the car that I arrived at a rare Eureka moment. Flying condom, 28 grams, 60 to 100 visits a year for on average four hours per visit. 70 casts an hour for over 20 seasons. Casting a combined accumulative weight just short of the Umber Bridge. 60 visits times 280 casts equals 16,800 casts per year. 16,800 casts times 21 years times Humber Bridge equals enraged shoulder like a beach ball. Maybe I should cut down on my spinning and concentrate on the fly rod. During the next four sessions on that table, I couldn't even contemplate explaining the obvious cause of my condition. That would mean describing the whole process of salmon fishing to Michelle, and then admitting that I had forgotten to mention that I was a fisherman. Face down, with my head looking through that porthole, examining the base of the massage table. Yep, that ship had sailed, so as usual I took the easy option and blamed parenthood. Just to recap, all that actually happened when I was working in the cracker factory. One of the perks of the job was when you got phone calls saying, oh, they're looking for uh, models over in Air and Beauty. So once you found out it wasn't for like some electrolysis treatment or air plucking or anything like that, it was like a mad dash to get over there and get a free massage. So I was all over that. And, 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 and. So June became my usual welcomed interlude. A month without temptation or haste. I took the chance to take some evening walks and check out some beats for pools that could be worth a dip with the shrimp or that could be worth a late night appointment. As soon as the cracker factory klaxon sounded, I could pole vault the fence, flee to the river and gleefully loaf about with the shrimp rod. 
happily watching the red top of my float roam down a pool like a drunk wandering home. This particular pool was on my direct flight path from work and it was criminal to pass it without having a look. I didn't do this every night, but only when the water had lifted and then dropped off quickly, allowing fish to move up and settle. It remains one of only two pools that constantly get referenced by other ribble anglers as a safe bet to see some fish in low water. It's normally a speedy affair, run the float through two 20 metre sections for an hour and bolt home. One minute I'm knelt trotting my float admiring the summer calm, enjoying the silence and wondering what's for tea, when a leaping fish only a matter of feet away that must be closer to 20 pounds than 15, clears my float and then proceeds to get covered for a good half an hour without so much as a bob. It's those types of incident that can send you home hatching plans. Later that night I was caught reading Fred Buller's essays on shrimp into my boy as a bedtime story. I was trying to import the seductive nature and anticipation of watching a float drift downstream, waiting for a bite. He seemed to like it. His mother took a different view. After the shoulder lull and this brief bit of rain, she was full of enthusiasm for me to go and enjoy myself on the river. Our recent day trips out had all included picnics by the Ribble and ice creams at Ribchester. How we joked about how I always managed to get us by the river somehow. Slowly this blooming enthusiasm had understandably dissolved to the point that I had to lie about my true thoughts. While clearly in a daydream come semi-trance, wondering about the changing geography of the river, bait, presentation, tactics, weather, forecasts, clubs, tackle, tide, water, salmon, sea trout, my wife suddenly asked me what I'm thinking about. Jolted from my daydream, I have to quickly scramble for my mental good behaviour cue cards. I can tell by her expression that she doesn't want to hear that I'm thinking about fishing. I convincingly tell her that I'm concerned about which primary school our one-year-old daughter should eventually go to. This is met with a suspicious approval, and the inevitable ugly byproduct leaps like a mugger at a cash point. A full-on conversation about education... I make a mental note to steer clear of reactionary hot topics. Of course, I can't tell her this and carry on rewinding my mind tape of the leaping salmon while nodding with my concerned face. The last thing I saw that night before visiting the landed nod was that same leaping salmon, both taunting and haunting, wrapped up in one perfectly framed airborne thrust. I found myself recumbent in an Eames reclining chair with my feet cradled in a matching footstool. I was in a dimly lit, oak-lined office. I could just make out a large oil painting of a proud cormorant hanging to my left. To my right, the walls were crowded with dusty books dancing for attention. Across from me was an ugly, large, dark wood desk and behind it sat my wife, dressed as Albert Einstein. She rocked forward and mouthed the word Parasite. 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 Parasite
Alberta was holding up a tortoise shell hand mirror that she had flipped round so I could see my own reflection. My mouth had become an oral cone and I had an insatiable primeval thirst for blood and fresh epidermal tissue. My antennae groped towards Einstein as I tried to take stock. My obsessive behaviour had triggered a metamorphosis. I was a fully functioning six foot sea louse and I was being counselled by Alberta Einstein. What could a sea louse do? Tell her that I would change my ways and look for an alternative to parasitic behaviour, go into politics, or that I was just naughty by nature. Alberta, resplendent in her Einstein wig, then said in a terrible Austrian accent, Do you know what the definition of insanity is, Mr. Louse? Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. It's doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. It's doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. Expecting different results. Expecting different results. and expecting different results. I walk shivering in a puddle of sweat, in a state of high anxiety and extreme relief. I quickly walk my wife and explain my terrible nightmare. She gently told me, with her brass neck, that if I'd been a parasitic sea louse, I may probably have been less needy. Still, in a heightened state, I needed definitive answers, so I pleaded. What had Alberta meant? Should I change tactics, go upstream, or sit tight and travel down to the lower river and hope for a tide fresh fish? Bemused and alarmed and staring straight at her, I received picture nor sound. Lamont's perfect phrase for the silent treatment. And with a shake of her head and a subtle roll of her shoulder, she turned on her side and sunk back under the duvet. This obviously reminded me of a salmon head and tailing. It had been a close call with that nightmare. Even worse than waking up nicely relaxing think it's a Sunday, only to shudder and realise that it's actually Bastard Monday. Thankfully, it was 6am on a Saturday and I had a plan. I quickly booted my five-year-old son out of bed and dressed him like Elmer Fudd, telling him we were going to catch Big Bad Barry, his favourite fish from the TV show, Ben and Holly's Little Kingdom, and that we would need to be quiet and avoid contact with the farmer as he would chase us. That was all a boy needed to hear. The potential of a chase by half Craves farmer on a quad bike, a mythical giant boat-eating fish as a prize, was like a self-voted pair eyes to a politician. So the eyes have it, the eyes have it. Unlock! All in favour of awarding ourselves an 11% pay rise, say aye. Greedy bastards. The only question my lad asked, was Dad, can we chase Mum with the fish's head? My heart filled with pride as I replied, Yes, son, of course we can. Wait. 
was the, the biggest, biggest fish I've ever seen. I've seen bigger. Much, much bigger. Really? Really. It was many years ago when I first met Big Bad Barry. Big Bad Barry? Who's that? Only the biggest, hugest, most gigantic fish the world has ever seen. No! We jumped in the car and Fran chose Johnny Common's fantastic LP, Master of None, as our Saturday morning soundtrack of DIY Lo-Fi Electronica. We were loaded with my salmon net, 12 foot barbell rod, spinning reel, and armed with a pocket full of Dayglow disco prawns, two floats, small box of drilled bullets, shrimp pins, trebles and line. Our session could last no longer than 7am till 9.30am as he had a swimming lesson. So we could just cover the top of the beat as this was where I'd seen the fish on the previous night and it was fairly easy to access. I laid it on thick as we crossed the 300 yards from the car to the river, making us go behind edges and staying out of sight from the farmhouse. I had permission to fish, but my lad didn't know that. It's a much better game to keep him in the dark and smuggle our way to the river. I hadn't really wanted to cultivate an already shadowing, skulking image of a track-suited or camouflage-clad bait angler. This was more a lesson in stealth. We belly crawled the last 20 yards until we dropped down the steep bank to the riverside. to field eclectic questions about the various capabilities of the farmers JCBs and tractors including top speeds and noise levels of the engines. Then the odd curveball direct from a five-year-old's mind. I set up quickly and cast slightly upstream and trotted the float down about a rod's length out. We were crouched low and quiet, me fishing with my lad on lion watch. Second cast, a salmon rises and shows its silver flank as it flashes at the bait without taking, turns and vanishes. The boy is oblivious to this as I tug his arm and gesture at the float while asking him if he saw the fish. No dad, was it Barry? Pulling the bail arm over and holding his hands on the rod, we flick the float out again about 10 feet in front of us. From the deep comes a salmon, all of 15 pounds, and clears our float by at least a foot, landing back in the river with a hefty sploosh. The boy's eyes widen as he shouts, It's Big Bad Barry, Dad. Why didn't you catch him? For the next hour, all we do is cast curses as we cover the spot and nothing else stirs. I knew we didn't have much chance when the fish came and turned away. They're usually either in the mood or not. My son remained admiringly philosophical as we trotted back to the car. Uncle Lamont would have caught Barry, Dad. He jumped right over your rod. Had he seen the farmer's lion, Dad? Maybe he already had breakfast. 
This was no time or place to start explaining the shrinking digestive system of the returning Atlantic salmon. Some things are best left unsaid. just been listening to Hooked on Hope, recast, produced by me, Paul Latrarch, written and read by James Gilbraith, and a massive, massive thanks to all our debutant actors in this episode, Ursula Cooper, who played Michelle, Anne Natraj, who played Marie, Aileen Melia, who played Donna, and Gus McKenna Seed, who played a young Fran Gilbraith. Massive, massive thanks and a big love to you guys for helping us out this time round. Indeed, for those of you who've listened before, you might have noticed that it's been over a year between episodes. Now, as you might know, Boo and I are doing this as a labour of love, and we'd very much like to do more than one episode a year, if at all possible. In order to do that, we ask for a little bit of support so that we can viably put out more than one episode every 12 months or so. In fact, it'd be really great if we could put out an episode maybe every month or every couple of months or something like that. So we've set up a Patreon page which allows people to donate a little bit every month so we can keep on making the show. And if you would like to be a Patreon and donate a little something, then please log on to www.patreon.com forward slash hooked on hope and follow the instructions that you find there. Not only will this help us keep on making the show, but Patreons will also get access to some bonus content. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, peace and blessings to you all, and a big, big thanks for always listening to us uh, and supporting the show. Uh, it's amazing. So, yeah, big, big respect and big thanks to you all for doing that. And if you could, log on to the Patreon page, that'd be great. And if you can't, no worries, but please comment on the Apple podcast page, like the show and share it amongst your friends as widely as you can. All right, it's enough from me. All the very best. Peace and blessings. Out.